Kiave Atin Hakba Mifani Daat Utbana Yitfaun Laish Raim Tu Shia Megin Loholaki Tam. You all with me? All right. That was Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, which says, For the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He grants a treasure of common sense to the honest. It's a true statement. It's a valuable statement. It's an important statement. God grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. But when I read it from the Hebrew... Y'all were just a little confused. I was not communicating knowledge and wisdom. As much as my words were saying knowledge and wisdom and understanding and clarity, I was not, in fact, accomplishing that in reading those to you. Today, as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in the last of this this group in chapters 11 through 14 that deal with our conduct conduct and worship, we come to the matter of clarity. Being clear in what we say and how we say it. Be clear in what we do and what we carry out. If we're to be a church, if we're to be a congregation that grows, if we're to be a people who makes a difference, if we're to be a people who are, are seeing people come to Christ, being transformed by the word of God, being affected by the fellowship that we have here, being affected by God's presence in our lives. We have to be a people who speak with clarity. We have to be a people who deal with things from the perspective of clarity. And so let's look at here in chapter 14 and see what Paul has to say about this very issue. We begin in verses uh, 1 through 6. It says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people, but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in other tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in other tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? We come to not only a passage that deals with clarity, but we come to a passage that is at the heart of a lot of confusion between different denominations, different groups, even people within uh, the same denomination. And, and it has to do with this whole issue of speaking in tongues. And the matter that, uh, and some of the things that Paul says here in chapter 14, chapter 14 is one of those chapters that's really um, at the heart of a lot of controversy. We're going to see that as we come through to some of the passages later on in this chapter. 
And it's very important that you have kind of a historical foundation, a historical background um, to understand what's going on here in Corinth that is affecting some of what Paul's saying here and, and why he spends so much time on this particular issue. Because in, in other churches, you don't see him spend a lot of time on tongues. He just doesn't. But here at Corinth, he's spending, he spent several chapters on it already. And he's going to spend a couple more as we continue on. Why so much here? So I want you to see a, a map of the area, uh, just so you can kind of understand some, some relationships that are at work here that are significant. Uh, this is a map of, of the Greek peninsula. You see Athens there uh, on the right, and you see Corinth there uh, kind of in the center on the left. And then right above Corinth, right across what's called the Gulf of Corinth, is the city or the place, the location, never really was a city. It was, a, it was a sacred site, Delphi. Now, most of you have heard some point in your life talking about Greek mythology or Greek thought or those sorts of things about the Oracle of Delphi, right? You, you all have heard of that? The Oracle of Delphi was, was a woman um, who supposedly had this, this, this gift of being able to discern futures, discern uh, directions, discern all these sorts of things. and um, she, when she communicated, she communicated it in tongues, in these in this strange language that really no one could understand. And then she would, after communicating that, it would be relayed to people through her other priest or through other interpreters and so forth that were there in Delphi. And because of Delphi's, uh, the oracle's position there in the culture and so forth, they had a huge influence on Corinth. Corinth is just, it's about 50 miles, give or take, straight across the gulf there. It, it took, uh, by boat, uh, you could be there easily in an hour. And there was a lot of influence that came from Delphi down there into, into Corinth. Okay, And not only that, Corinth also had a lot of influence from uh, worship of, of Aphrodite, uh, Demeter, other uh, individuals such as that, other gods in their pantheon. And so what happened in Corinth, in, 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 the, in the area of Delphi there, is that tongues became very important. To be able to express things in tongues, to be able to express things through what would be, what we would label today as ecstatic speech, was a marker of spiritualism. It was a marker of specialness in their culture, much more so than any other part. If you go to Ephesus and other places, there might have been some, some notions of that, but it wasn't as highlighted and as uh, uh, and important as it was in, in this particular region of, of the Roman Empire. And, and on top of that, and this is going to come into play a little bit later in the chapter, on top of that, women, unlike any other part of the Roman Empire, played a significant part in the worship of uh, the worship in Corinth and in Delphi. In most of the Roman Empire, women were relegated to second class status. That was their culture. That was their uh, the, the nature of who they were. But in Corinth um, and Ephesus for different reasons, women played an elevated role in the spiritual realities. And as such, they had certain expectations for 
what their role would be once Christianity moved into that region. As they were converted, as they came to Christ, as they heard the message of Christ, they had certain expectations of how what role they might be playing and how that might function in the church. And so this this mixture of this importance of tongues and the, the role of women and, and, and especially in opposition to, to what Judaism often held as the role of women led to this confusion in Corinth. This church has started. Because you have the Jews in Corinth and they're saying one thing. And then you have uh, the people who have been influenced by the, 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 the tongues, they're saying another. And then you have the people who are influenced by women's roles from coming in from Aphrodite and, and Delphi and these other things, they're saying yet a third thing. And it was very confusing. And Paul is speaking into that circumstance. And that's important as we look at this passage this morning that you understand that Paul's not just writing this just because he wanted to discuss this topic. Okay, He's not just addressing the church here because he's like, you know what, we haven't really spent any time on tongues. Let's go into that. that that's not what his motivation is. Paul here is trying to speak into a situation where there's a lot of confusion, where there's a lot of mixed up ideas and people coming in from different angles. And so he wants to emphasize the importance of clarity. Now, in the church today, we don't hear, we don't have these different really struggling cultures um, at least not to the degree that you see here. You do have struggling cultures in the U.S. today. You have people who have different perspectives of the role of women. You have people who have different perspectives on the issue of tongues. You have people who have different perspectives on the, the role of the pastor as opposed to the church members. You have lots of different perspectives that come together, but nothing to the degree you had here, and yet we still struggle with clarity. We still struggle with connecting with the world around us. We talked last week about love and how the church has such a different perspective of love than the world that we minister to and how it's important that we, that we define things correctly, we respond to things correctly. And to see that and to hear that is to, is to understand that, that we need to be clear in our message. And Paul gives us some rationales. The first thing he tells us about clarity in these first six verses that I've read here is that clarity edifies the church. It builds it up. What's he say here? He says, um, the person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues. Why? Unless he interprets that the church may be built up. Now, Paul here, when he says, I wish that all of you spoke in tongues, is not saying that, that or, or commanding that that be a reality. Those today who suggest that unless you've spoken in tongues, you have not experienced the Holy Spirit, are not representing Paul in that conclusion, in that observation. They're not representing Scripture with such a statement. Paul here admits, he suggests that they're not there. But he's not even suggesting that, that he wants everybody necessarily to do it. What he's saying is what? He's saying that in comparison to prophecy, tongues is not as important. 
and he's saying that in in terms of this in terms of this church, where again because of the culture, tongues has become such an elevated stance and such an important part of their culture, part of their expression, part of their understandings of spiritual realities. He's saying, yeah, it'd be great if all of you all could be on equal standing in that realm. But why are you pursuing that? But instead, you should be pursuing the word of prophecy. Now, what's the word of prophecy? The word of prophecy is simply the ability to take the truths of God and apply it to everyday life. That's the word of prophecy. He's not talking about being able to predict the future. He's not talking about uh, you know uh, seeing into the mysteries of God necessarily. We do have some of that in the New Testament, but by and large, the word the, the, the word of prophecy, the gift of prophecy, is the, is the word, the ability to speak plainly and clearly about the truths that God has already revealed to a situation. You, you ever had somebody where maybe the church is, is struggling with something, or maybe you personally are struggling with something, and you just can't figure it out, and they come along and you explain to them exactly what's going on, and they take the Word of God and they apply it directly to what's happening, and they say, this is what God would have you do, and you're like, dude, I understand now. Okay, that's prophecy. It's the ability to take the Word of God, to apply it to a situation, and say, this is the direction we need to go. This is the direction you need to go. That's the gift. And how special is that gift? How important is that gift? How valuable is that gift to be able to, to speak into someone's life or to speak into a church's life in its direction and so forth and say, this is what God would have us do. Based upon what I see in Scripture, based upon my, my proper interpretation of Scripture, this is how that applies. This is where we can go with that. We need that voice. We need that, that understanding because it what? It builds up the church. It edifies. It helps us become more than what we were before. And it does that because it's so clear. There's no questioning. There's no debating. There's no, there's no struggling over the exact meaning or intent. The word of prophecy is spoken with clarity. And that's what we need in our church, even beyond the issue of gifts. We need clarity. We need direction. The second thing Paul goes on to say is that clarity creates unity. Continuing on in verse, uh, in verse 7, even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker. The speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for, spirit, for the spiritual uh, expression, seek to excel in building up the church. So he starts here with an illustration. Okay. Um, I, was a, I was a band parent uh, during uh, many years uh, there, uh, back in our previous locale. And, and I used to joke, we've all been there, you're sitting at a band concert and, and you have that time before the, the concert actually starts where all the instruments are just playing. And I assume they're playing something. 
okay, but you can't really can't really make it out. It's just this, it's just this noise. Oh, you know, you're sitting there going, okay, they're warming up their lips, or I don't know what they're doing. I need to actually probably ask my band member what they were doing. He can probably tell me. But I used to always joke, this is my favorite song that they play. Okay, you know. It's not really a song. There's, there's nothing to it. And yet it kind of almost sounds the same every time they do it. Anyway, my point is this. If a band is not following certain notes, you have no idea what they're doing. When you go to um, you know, football games and so forth, and the band gets out there and does their, their march, they play their song. Okay, Typically, you can make out what song that is. Not always, but most of the time you can make out what song it is. Why? Because they're playing a set type of notes. So the, the notes that are there in the song that were done in the studio years before, now they're playing those same notes. And so you connect what they're doing here with what was done there back in the studio. The notes determine the sound. The sound communicates something to you. Okay. It's there. And so Paul is using this image here, but he says what? He says, but, it, but if they don't, they don't play the notes, then you can't recognize the song. And then he gives a, an ominous image. If the bugle, the horn, the war horn is blown and they don't follow the set patterns to call people to battle, no one will know how to respond. And he uses that ominous note to, to say, we as Christians are in a battle and if we're not speaking clearly in the messages that we proclaim, no one's going to know how to respond to that battle. No one's going to know how to deal with the conflict that we all encounter. And then he moves back into speech. And there in verse 11, my translation says, if, if, I, speak, if I speak a language and, and they don't know the meaning of what I'm saying, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. You may have a different word there than foreigner. Some of your translations may say barbarian or something along those lines. What you simply need to know about the word, however we want to translate it, is that it is pejorative in force. In other words, it's negative. In other words, they will view me as incomprehensible, and I will view them as incomprehensible. We'll both see each other as uncivilized. We'll both see each other as less than. We'll both see each other as something other than human. And so he advocates for clarity. He advocates for prophecy. He advocates for translation of tongues if, if tongues are present. Why? Because a gift without clarity really isn't a gift at all. No sound, no utterance, no matter how wonderful it may be, is of value if the people hearing it can't understand it. The verse I started with when I'm reading there in the Hebrew. It's a valuable verse. It's the truth of God's word. It, 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 it expresses some, some, some things about our relationship with God that are essential to our walk and to our faith. But if you can't understand what I'm saying, 
then I don't need to be saying it. And so Paul here says that that clarity creates unity. It removes that barrier of seeing the other person as something different, something strange, something unacceptable. Think of it this way. Have you ever been in a, in a class, academic class or Sunday school or whatever, and the teacher says something, explain some equation, explain some situation, explain some circumstance, and you're sitting there and you're and the person just talks so far over your head, you have no idea what they're saying. Okay. That was math for me. Okay, they started talking about coefficients and other ints and whatever other things, and I was just lost. Okay, and then you what? You get a tutor who comes in and they sit beside you and they say let me explain to you a little bit differently. And they use some illustration. Maybe they, they write it out for you in a different, different way. Or, or they use just more common language to explain it. And you're like, oh, now I get it. Okay, Which person did you feel more close to? The tutor who helped you understand or the teacher who was talking over your head? Clarity brings unity. It brings connection. And when we are a church and we're ministering and we're sharing our faith and we're communicating Christ, we're communicating Christ's love and those sorts of things, if we're speaking in so-called Christianese, speaking that language that we in this church understand but people out there don't understand, and that's becoming more and more the case. We no longer live in a culture that is, that is Christian-centered. That is, that is Christian, um, that speaks Christian. We don't live in that culture anymore. The whole illustration last week of the, the meaning of love is an example. What the world means by love is not what we mean by love. What the world means for tolerance is not what we mean for tolerance. So how do we connect with them? We have to speak clearly. We have to go to take extra steps to make sure we're being clear. To make sure we're being understood. To make sure that people are connecting with us. Because people will be drawn to, will be connecting to that which they understand. And so clarity creates unity. Along with that comes the fact that clarity brings agreement. In verses 13 through 19, Therefore the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with praise, and with uh, I will sing with praise with the spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you may well, may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words of clarity in order to teach others than 10,000 words. 
I would rather speak five words of clarity than 10,000 in this special sacred tongue that no one can understand. We find agreement. We find connection when we speak with clarity. I had a had a friend who um, he was of the disposition that if he couldn't understand what was going on, he was going to disagree with me. And, and it could be it could be something like science or math or something that was that was dem- demonstrable by the professor or the teacher. They could they could write out the equation there and they could show it. But if he didn't understand it, he was going to say that's wrong. And I think all of us have that tendency on some level. You know, if we're confused or if we're um, um, not really certain of something, most of us have the tendency to just say no to it. Okay. Because what? Rather to be safe than sorry, right? You know, if you say no to something, then you're not subject to it. You're not um, given into it. So clarity is essential to find agreements in a church. It's essential to, to find agreement in, in terms of who we are. It allows people to say, yeah, amen. I heard what you're saying there. Identify with that. I want to be a part of that. Clarity also permits evangelism. Paul says there in verses 20 through 25, and I won't read the passage, but he essentially says this, that speaking in tongues leaves the non-believer without hope. It condemns them because they have no idea of how to respond to it. They have no idea what the gospel is. They have no idea who Christ is. They have no idea what the truth is because they don't understand it. Being clear in our speech, being clear in our approach is essential to who we are and to seeing people come to Christ. But then Paul concludes with the truth that clarity occurs in how things are done as well as how things are said. He starts by noting that spontaneity is good, but only if it's done in good order. What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two, or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. I don't see that passage carried out much in circles that supposedly practice tongues today. No more than a group of two or three. And then there has to be an interpreter present. Someone once asked me at my previous church, Pastor Tim, what would you do if right in the middle of your sermon someone stood up and started speaking in tongues. 
How would you respond to that? I said, well, I would apply 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 and following. And I would, I would say, stop. Is there an interpreter present? If there's not an interpreter present, I would tell the person to sit down and be silent. God's word is what? It's not just about saying the right things. It's not just about um, communication with clarity. It's about what? Doing things with clarity. In good order. In, in a way that people are not disenfranchised. In a way that people are not confused. In a way that people are not pushed to the side. There is a time for everything. Now, as we come to verse 34, we come to one of those passages that's the heart of a lot of controversy even today. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? So you hear that passage, and you have different ways of interpreting. Okay, Some would suggest that this is a blanket prohibition, that what Paul is saying here, what Paul means here is simply that Women are not allowed to speak in any sort of authoritative way, in any sort of directive way in a church. They're not allowed to teach. They're not allowed to instruct. They're not allowed to preach. Now, clearly, since we have some women who teach mixed groups here, we obviously don't hold to that view in our congregation. Are we being untrue to God's word? that approach? And my answer is simply no, because if you go back to chapter 11, verse 5, Paul says what? Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. How can a woman pray or prophesy in the church if she's always, continuously, constantly, forever to be silent in the church? It's the same book. It's the same text. Paul earlier says a woman can pray, a woman can prophesy. Here, he cannot therefore be saying a woman has to constantly, continually, always be quiet in the church. It can't mean that. He would be contradicting himself. He would be at odds with what he's already revealed as proper and appropriate. Others argue that he is doing what he's done earlier in Corinth where he is he's quoting a, a Corinthian statement and then arguing against it. Remember earlier we had that all things are beneficial or, or all things are permissible where he quotes the Corinthian church and he goes on to say, but not all things are beneficial. And so some think that's what's going on here. He's quoting something that's going on in Corinth. But if that's the case, it, it's totally out of the character of the church there, out of the culture there, and it really doesn't fit how Paul uses these words elsewhere in the letter. 
Some say it's an insertion by a later church leader. That is that somebody, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, somewhere along the way, they didn't like women speaking in their church, so they inserted it here and, and said Paul said it. The problem with that is there's absolutely no manuscript evidence anywhere. And we have some very early manuscripts at Corinthian that support that view. This passage is there from the very earliest copies we have of this book. Some say women were chattering or gossiping. Paul is addressing them. If that's the case, then why does he silence all women in this sentence? What is he doing here? I think if you look at the, the text, you look at the context, you look at the flow of the argument, Paul is saying he's trying to avoid open conflict. That that's what he's talking about here. Remember what I said about the culture, the church here. You had these people who had come from the worship of Aphrodite. You had these people who had been influenced, these women who had been influenced by Delphi, people who were of the, 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 the mindset, the perspective, that they had the right, even the responsibility, to openly stand up and speak words of discord, to openly stand up and speak words of disagreement with what was being said by the elders, by the, by the preacher, by the teacher. And Paul's point here is, uh-uh. If that's your role, if that's your purpose, all women everywhere sit down and be quiet. If your purpose is to sow discord, then don't say anything at all. If your mindset, if your perspective is to argue, then just be quiet. This is why he says what? Ask wives to your own husbands at home. If you have something where you disagree with something that the elders are saying, the pastor's saying, the, the, the prophecies that are coming out, do it at home. And then the expectation is that can then be brought up in an orderly fashion to deal with this issue. This passage is not in any way related to the passages in Timothy and so forth that talk about similar issues. It's a very different question, a very different church. It's a very different situation. Paul here is simply saying there's a time for everything, including questions and doubts and arguments and the middle of a service is not one of those. Do things in an orderly fashion. Now he goes on to say, even though he's addressed women here, he goes on in 36 through 40 to make it clear that he's not just talking about women. He's talking about everybody do this. Did the word of God originate from you or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or, a spirit or spiritual, he should recognize that what I wrote to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. Notice he's talking to men here. He's changed gender. From the feminine to the masculine. Men, if you want to get involved in this, you're going to be ignored too. 
So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in other tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. The Spirit will confirm the truth. So what is Paul, to wrap this up, what is Paul suggesting here? He's saying that clarity is the means by which we best exercise worship of God and our fellowship with believers and our evangelism of non-believers. Be clear. And how are you to be clear? In many ways, he's summing up what he's already said. You, you communicate clarity by being respectful. Chapter 11. By being diverse. Chapter 12. And by walking in love. Chapter 13. Those truths come together in unity. Those truths come together in clarity. Because as we're respectful to others, as we acknowledge the diversity of others, and as we love others, we're going to communicate the gospel with clarity. We're going to communicate the truths of God's word in a way that all understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word, Lord. The clarity with which you speak to us in so many ways. The clearest of which was when you sent your son to die so that we might have life. What amazing love. What powerful grace is available to us. God, I pray that you would help us to speak with clarity. That you would help us to communicate the truth of your love and your goodness. The sacrifice of your son. Help us to show respect. Help us to be a diverse people. Help us to live and walk in love. And to do so with a clarity that removes all obstacles and excuses. We love you, Lord. We give you this time in Christ's name.